Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we're discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Two outstanding guests join me this week, so I will hand over to them to introduce themselves. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. Um, my name's Carl Woods. I'm a uh, Senior Research Fellow in Skill Acquisition, I guess, um, at Victoria University, specifically in the Institute for, for Health and Sport. Um, I say I guess because uh, I spend a lot more of my time in lots of different areas uh, th these days, um, actually trying to argue a lot against over-specialisation and disciplinisation um, in, uh, in sport, but, uh, but uh, I primarily lead our, our research in, uh, in, in skill and expertise in, uh, in, in sport and physical education at the university. Um, really, at the moment, I'm, I'm interested in exploring more metaphysical concepts, so things like knowledge and, and, and knowing um, and what that might actually be. And I, and I like to uh, um, look through, through a lens of, of more an ecological approach to what, what that might actually entail. Uh, prior to taking on um, uh, my, my role at the university as an academic, I, um, I spent uh, a few years as, as uh, coaching and innovations manager at Port Powell, which are an AFL club, like a premier Australian football league uh, team um, based in Adelaide, uh, which was which was a wonderful experience. Um, learned lots about the application of these ideas in practice, and that led to to kind of a lot of lot of things that I'm exploring now. Um, prior to that, I was a teaching research academic at, at James Cook University in North Queensland, uh, where, where the areas of interest were in motor control and motor learning, um, and, uh, and, and really enjoyed getting my teeth stuck into to what being an academic might entail. Um, and then prior to that, I, I uh, completed my PhD in, in, um, in sports science and skill acquisition at Edith Cowan University uh, in Western Australia. Um, that uh, kind of grew up in Adelaide. So I've just darted across the place, darted across Australia to, to, to find my way to where I am now. Um, uh, but, yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a, a synopsis to, to who I am. That's a, that's a hell of an act to follow, isn't it? <laughs> um, my name's uh, Ben Franks. I'm a lecturer in applied coaching science at Oxford Brookes University. Um, I've been there for the last kind of nine months, mostly teaching across, in fact, teaching across a bit of everything, really. Um, I had the, you know, the, might be a positive, might be a negative of being a super generalist at the start of my career. So a bit, a, bit, a little bit all over the place. Um, prior to that, I was a, a kind of teaching fellow slash PhD student at Canterbury Christchurch. And before that, I was lecturing at the university campus of football business in Wembley as well. Um, yeah, my, my kind of main research interests uh, kind of loosely fit between kind of coaching science and a bit more ecological psychology stuff and trying to bridge some of those gaps. Um, trying to look at kind of actual skill performance embedded in kind of natural contexts. And it's mostly kind of visual based, um, kind of looking at information for, for, kind of for the control of movement as well. Um, outside of that, kind of the actual interesting stuff, I... Uh, currently kind of coach analyst at Gillingham Women Football Club in the third tier of the, the women's game in the UK, um, which is 
an incredible experience. Um, it's in that weird position where one league above us is full team, full time, and our league is kind of in between full time and oh, completely no resources at all. So that's, that's a real nice battle, um, but in a super positive way. Um, but yeah, before that, just kind of coaching here, there, and everywhere in kind of non-league football in Kent in southeast UK. So yeah, that's kind of my uh, brief brief synopsis of, of me. Love it. Guys, absolute pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I guess just before we get stuck into things, as a reminder to anyone listening, to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to the resources that guys talk about and other resources that I find this week. So, um, yeah, we'll get straight in. Carl, we are coming to you first. What are you going to chat to us about? Yeah, cool. Um, I was umming and ahhing for a while over what to what to actually spend a bit of time um un- unpacking and and uh, kind of settled on this i guess the most logical um uh, solution which was what i've been spending the last few years really trying to to get my head around uh, a little bit which is these more um i guess metaphysical concepts so more specifically uh knowledge and and knowing and, and what it, what it might mean and what, what these concepts might mean in a, in a really dynamic world that's that's undergoing continued change, and, and obviously, for a more specific example in in, um, in sport, um, and so that that's kind of taken me through some really quirky areas, and and really into these like transdisciplinary spaces in between, you know, pretty established disciplines like ecological psychology and social anthropology and and, and sports science, um, and those that that. I may have read any of any of our work over the last few years and probably see a pretty consistent theme through through our work that I'm a big fan of, of an anthropologist named Tim Ingold. I really enjoy the way he thinks and I enjoy the way he writes and, and the, the stuff he writes about and, and the concepts he explores. Um, so I guess the more more appropriate thing to to bit of a bit of um, uh, information we talk about I thought we'd talk about tonight would be one of his books, um, which uh, which I, I revisit regularly and, and have just really recently spent a bit of time uh, dwelling in again for, for for a project which which I'll talk a little bit about. But his book is Making Anthropology, Art, Archaeology, and um, um, uh, uh, Anthropology, and it's a it's published in two thousand and thirteen. Um, and uh, and he explores lots of different concepts within there, but fundamentally it relates to, to what it might mean to make something. Um, and, and he explores these various ideas of, of, of making pots and, and wicker baskets to building cathedrals and, and really specific watches. And they're, they're the kind of theme that goes throughout this book is, is this notion that um, uh, really skilled craftspersons don't actually follow a plan per se, right? And, and that's that's what I want to want to want to really focus on. I think in in sports science, but I I think generally in science, we're fixated upon following rules and methodologies. Um, this is how it, this is how you are supposed to be as a sports scientist, or this is how you are supposed to undertake sports science research, or this is how going more specifically, this is how you are supposed to undertake research within skill acquisition. And and listeners that are familiar in in, in the academic uh, circles will appreciate that through things like um, uh, doctoral programs, which demand that you, you have a proposal set in stone, ready to go within about six months of your candidature. So you have a, a, a plan ready to go that you just roll out in the next two to three years of, of, of your research. So you're following the plan. 
And why that kind of concerns me a little bit, and, and I'll, I'll bring this back into Ingold's work in a minute, is that we get then really good at planning and following the plan rather than responding and learning to be selectively responsive to the phenomena that we proclaim to study. So then what happens is, is we see sports scientists go into an organisation and they just follow the plan. They, they don't worry about what a coach has to say, what athletes have to say, um, what, what, um, uh, what, whatever the phenomena that they really want to study, whether that be learning, whether that be practice design, whether that be physiologically related, whatever it might be, they don't really follow what that has, has to show to them or, or tell them. Instead, they just follow whatever their, their chartered plan um, has, uh, has, has, has been put forward for them. And that's what um, that, that kind of mode of, of, of scientific inquiry is really a hypothetically deductive approach where, where we kind of start with this hypothesis and we deduce to why that, that hypothesis occurred rather than actually listening or, or seeing or detecting what's going on around us. And that, that has its roots in this Aristotelian um, theory of holomorphism where form is imposed onto inert substances, right? And in this case, form, meaning the plan, is imposed onto the sporting organisation, which is the, the inert substance. And that's all well and good, I think, at times. Um, but, but what I, I really think we lose in that process is, is the development of, of the scientists, the development of, of these really, really interesting uh, offshoots that we can, we can respond to and, and, and follow off, um, uh, follow off and, 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 and go along. Um, so that's why I, I think we need to adopt more of a, a notion of, here's a bit of a quirky one for you, thinking through making and doing rather than making through through thinking and doing, right? The, the kind of, um, uh, the, the, the former in, uh, encourages this notion of improvisation, finding our way, attending to things as we go, whereas the latter kind of has this notion of we come up with all these solutions that we're, we're indeed to, to try to go and, uh, and act um, and then we simply just go and do them prior to actually having, uh, having been exposed to them. Uh, and Ingold talks a lot about this in, in, in his text, um, in, in his 2013 book, Making. And he talks a lot about it through um, these um, Gothic cathedral um, masons uh, pre-1300. And this, there's this, it's pretty debated. I should probably preface this to say it's pretty debated. But there's, there's one side of this debate that argues that these masons that built these magnificent cathedrals did so without plans. They did so without these, these really rigid um, uh, rules that they were to follow. And they did so by, by kind of figuring things out as they go, by experimenting, giving things a go, putting things in place. So they actually, um, as scholars these days, actually probably make or, or portray cathedrals as more patchwork quilts. So they look a bit odd in places and they're not really symmetrical, but that's because they're figuring it out as they go. And they're not actually following a really rigid plan. And why that's important is because they're attending to the materials that they're using as they're going, right? It wasn't as, wasn't as manufactured as, as, it, as it is now. Now, on the flip side of that argument, I should preface to say that there are scholars that said because there isn't any evidence of plans doesn't mean that there is their plans weren't used in the first place. But I tend to tend to follow the, the belief that, that they figured things out as, as they went. And I think that's a really important part for sport. You know, I think linking this all back to sport, I think we're, we're really good as sports scientists and, and coaches at developing these elaborate plans, three or four years worth of research as a sports scientist or having these really elaborate game models and tactics which we're going to roll out over the course of the season. 
Um, and, and I think what we do in doing that is we actually forget to attend to the very thing that we're really interested in, 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 um, in understanding and coming to know. So from a sports scientist perspective, we close off to all of the things that we can, that we can understand and that we can learn from, from actually being responsive beings um, in, within an organisation. Um, so for me personally, um, some of the most profound things I've learned as a scientist have come from actually just shutting up and listening to what coaches and athletes, athletes particularly, can share with me, uh, both in, in what they say and, and in what they do, which you won't find in, in any particular textbook. Probably note as the conversation goes on, I like to go off on heaps of different tangents. There's a brilliant example. I think it's Bob Harrison, who was a physicist, built this wonderful laser in the 1960s. And then in the 70s, these British um, uh, scientists tried to emulate this, this laser and they followed the exact methodology that, that Harrison had put forward, but they couldn't do it until they started talking to Harrison uh, and talking to others who had made this laser and worked out that it wasn't about following the specific methodology. It was about learning to find their way through the laboratory of which to make the laser. So it was about attending to the nuances of the laboratory or the place that they were, they were finding, to put it in more layman's terms. I could give you both a recipe about how to cook any meal in the world. Doesn't mean you're going to be able to cook it, right? It takes a lot of skilled attentiveness. You need to understand how flavours uh, work together, how different bench tops or cooktops might actually work, how different stoves or ovens might actually heat. And that comes from, from exposure and attentiveness and responsiveness. But what I talk about these days is, is more this notion of corresponsiveness, being able to correspond uh, with uh, with with, with the phenomena. So that's from a scientific perspective, I guess. From a coaching perspective, um, I think it really demands a, a, a firm humility that coming up with a plan isn't going to win you a game, right? It, it, coming up with a really rigid, um, although it might be elaborate, way of, of wanting to play isn't going to be what players regulate when they regulate off of when they go out and go out and actually play. They're going to respond, selectively respond to the movements of their teammates and the opponents and all these other really important things that are going on in, um, in, in, uh, in the game. Now, with all this said and done, I don't think that plans uh, are, are pointless. I don't think we, uh, this isn't a plea to say avoid all planning and throw out all planning because clearly they're important. But I just think we need a, a careful attentiveness to, to, to appreciate that we shouldn't be striving to learn to attend to plans and maps uh, and rigid schemes of doing they might help us orient our search, but they're not things that we're going to anchor it off of. What's going to help us really find our way is learning to attend to, to the things that are around us um, or that we're immersed within at those particular um, uh, situations. So when I talk to coaches, I often, I often like to, to talk um, about the, the importance of rules of thumb, figuring things out as they go, not necessarily being wedded to, well, this is how I want to play or this is, this is how we have to play against this particular opponent. And, I, and the reason I brought it up earlier is because I bring it up to coaches. Well, if a, a, a mason in the um, 1100s can build one of the most beautiful cathedrals that stands for 800 years without a plan, I'm pretty sure you can win a game without having to follow a specific plan. Um, so uh, that, that, that ties into, into a lot where, where we are at the moment. And it's a bit of a plea for, for universities and academic institutions to avoid their fixation on um, uh, researcher training programs that fixate upon 
PhD students, and I target PhD students because I supervise a lot of PhD students, but target targeting them, um, they're, they're fixated upon them, uh, upon following rules and scripts about how what, what their research should look like in two years' time. I have no idea what their research should look like in two years' time, and that's perfectly okay. To me, that's responsive research. That's what research should be. I shouldn't, it shouldn't be about following these, these scripts laid out in advance to the T. It should simply just be a way of helping us, um, I guess, get a bit of a bearing of our surrounds, but not, not constrain us to, to following that particular area. So lots of different tangents to go off in then, but it's probably a good one because, you know, Ben, you're, you're probably at a stage of, of your career where I guess you would be, um, you'd be exploring some of these things through your PhD and the importance of planning, but not being too wedded to, to following exactly what a proposal, a research proposal has to, has to, um, um, has to, to lead out because, I'm sure, as, as you would have seen as, as, as a coach as well, there are lots of other areas that you could explore uh, throughout the course of, of, of your research without having to be particular wedded to a, to a particular plan or way of doing. Yeah, don't get me started on mandatory research training at the institution at the moment. <laughs> um, no, massively. A lot, a lot connects there from where I, I feel like I'm sat currently in terms of coaching and in academia. Um, I mean, particularly, we, we've had a, a paper out, out, out of my master's being bashed around by reviewers and, and rejected by so many journals because of it, it's really case study based. And we were just interested to know what genuine elite performers do rather than having like a control group and an intervention. And, and it's, not, it's not brilliant science in, in the way that you'd call brilliant science in the very linear logically processed step-by-step kind of typical typical of quantitative work and it's been really tough trying to build our narrative around but we, just, we, we were just interested to know what some actually experts did but that's really hard to, to get so much pushback in and what is actually explore and observe and know rather than having some kind of preset hypothesis and and trying to explore a particular event in a particular way under particular controls. And it's been quite a, quite a difficult challenge to the point where my PhD research has, has kind of been pushed away from that because of those constraints in, that are in place and imposed on by academia or by scientific principles. I, I feel like I've ended up being pushed away from that space of just observing or just listening, just perceiving and then trying to exist in a reality. I think that's a, a really profound point because what you're what you're kind of touching on is this conflation that I think we don't detect in in sports science um, and I guess for for uh, in in other areas in, in coaching science it's 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 similar but we we seem to conflate the pursuit of objectivity as being the same as the pursuit of truth and they're not the same. Right, these two things aren't the same. Forever trying to be objective is not, um, I, for me at least, and I do, I preface this by saying, uh, ask me this 10 years ago and I'll tell you that what I'm saying now is, is mad, um, but, but having, having gone through, through a, a, um, this path, the pursuit of objectivity is, is I think, is, is a fallacy that you can never, never obtain. Like how, how are you supposed to remove yourself from a world that you then proclaim to want to be immersed in and understand, you can't. You can't do that. But that's not to do. That's that's not then to just say straight away. Well, objectivity is meaningless. Not at all. It's it's to appreciate um, that the pursuit of truth 
uh, for, for me at least as, as, a, as a scientist, is about care and curiosity. Care meaning I care about getting the right things right. Like I, 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 if I really want to understand concepts and, 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 and engage with, with concepts, I want to really care about getting that right. And curiosity about um, appreciating that it's ongoing, that, 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 that this pursuit of truth isn't going to end. I'm not all of a sudden going to one day be enlightened and go, well, geez, I read that methodology and that's all I need to know about that particular topic. Or, or you know, I worked with this coach and we developed an elaborate game model which is going to beat every opponent in every situation in every, um, you know, stadium in the world. No, it's, it's a curiosity of appreciating that this is ongoing, you know, that there is no end point. Um, and, and this is why... Um, I think ideas of transdisciplinarity are really important to me as a scientist and, and to, to we, it might seem like really, really different concepts of difficult concepts for coaches to grasp, but I think they're really important because they emphasise that, you know, um, really enlightening things can be found in really different places if we're really willing to engage in curiosity. Now, I know that word is, is used almost to death in coaching, you know, like be curious as a coach, you know, we should, should maintain a level of curiosity and, and, and these types of things. But to genuinely be curious is a really difficult thing because to be genuinely curious, you have to learn to be comfortable really being uncomfortable, really being, oh, geez, there's, this, there's these things that I don't know and, but I, I want to go off and search. And by searching, you often find more things to go off and find and, and more interesting loose ends to go and follow up with. And to me, at least, that's what science is all about. It's not, it's not about trying to remove those emotions by maintaining some level of objectivity, by hovering above what goes on, on ground, at the ground level. It's about immersing myself in it and being fully absorbed in it um, but also appreciating that, uh, that, that, that really what, what, I'm, what I'm interested in, I really need to care about, about getting right and then continue to follow those things on um, where, wherever they lead me. But, but I do worry a lot on this conflation of objectivity um, and, and, and the pursuit of truth, these things being one and the same. And, and to me, it's a, this, this fallacy of objectivity is manifest in lots of parts of our society, Right university metrics, um, judging how academics perform, you know, oh, Ben, you're a good academic because you've got X publications, X student evaluations and X grant funding. That means you're supposedly, objectively, a good academic. Clearly, any educated person will tell you that there are lots of ways around that. And I think the same is in coaching and I think the same is in sport. You know, we risk this notion of a coach being purely objective going, hang on a second, player X, Y and Z, uh, are doing this, this, and this out on the field, objectively looking at metrics. So they should supposedly be doing this, this, and this out on the field. But we we run the risk then of of really reducing and delimiting what it is that um, uh, that, that that we're subsequently looking at. And these are really uncomfortable things to to face for for someone like myself, who, who as I said, kind of started their career as a, as a pretty hardcore quantitative scientist that thought the world could be explained numerically you know and 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 i think there's a the time and place for those tools but i also think at times sports science and coaching needs to sit back and go well geez we've got analysis all the way up here and synthesis all the way down here maybe we need to bring them to some level of balance to appreciate that numbers and and objectivity isn't going to save us from ourselves that we need to start to actually harness some of these, these really rich experiential experiences and case examples 
Um, there, I think it was uh, Alicia Gigero in her book Dynamics in Action um, as, a, as a complexity theorist mentioned or complexity philosopher um, mentioned this really wonderful sentiment where she said narratives and story mightn't help us predict the future, but they'll help us identify why the future is unpredictable. And, and to me, I think that's that's what we need to appreciate in sport, that we need to break away from this notion of objectivity of trying to predict what's going to happen and then setting and charting a path toward that and instead simply go along. And that opens the door to a really interesting question, whether it's for here or another day, on the role then of anticipation and from a, an ecological perspective of anticipation. If, if we're going to start to break away from this notion of trying to predict everything that's going to happen, what role does anticipation have? And, and for me... Um, this notion of anticipation isn't about trying to predict what's going to happen and then, then almost overlay a, a course toward it. Anticipation is about holding open opportunities that, that could occur in the future, looking up, looking ahead and finding our way forward, helping us improvise a way forward. I, um, as a bit of an experience, a bit of an opportunity, I guess a bit of a thought experiment for, for people listening um, uh, I, I often think of, of, of some of the things that I'm um, most, uh, I guess, uh, what I would class as, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, mindless in how I am, these, these unreflective actions that, that I undertake in everyday life, drinking out of a cup, going to the coffee, local coffee shop, uh, talking to you guys now, I don't have these elaborate paths set out that I, I subsequently go, I, I want to follow, but I'm anticipating where the conversation's going to go by trying to hold open opportunities for all of us to engage in these large-scale opportunities, um, to use ecological terminology, these large-scale affordances, which then all of these little things that are going on within the conversation I'm trying to use to, to knock together to hold open that larger space that we're subsequently working in as, uh, as we go in. People that, and again, people that, 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 that perhaps think these are, these are philosophical ideas, there's, there's actually really nice empirical work that shows that that's what expert craftspersons do. Um, architecture, uh, archi um, architects actually work towards holding open these large-scale projects that they do. They don't have these elaborate plans specifically that they're subsequently following, but they, they, they test out things, they give things a go to hold open a larger space of, of, of opportunities for them. And then there's all these little things that go on in between and then we can start to get into some quirky things with regards to temporality. But um, yeah, there's lots, lots, of, lots of important things to, to cover off on, but it really for me, it links back to this notion of not being wedded to an, a plan, an objective plan of this is how we have to do things. Because to me, at least, um, or at least my own experience is um, I'm making it up as I go along, you know, like I'm figuring out my own path as, as, as I go along by responding to what interests me at these particular times. What interests me now isn't what interested me three years ago uh, and it's probably not, is, is not what's going to interest me in three years' time. But if I'm, I'm wedded to this is how a skill acquisition scientist has to act or this is how a coach has to act or this is how a sports scientist has to act, I'm probably going to blinker myself to all these really rich things that I could learn in domains well beyond where, where perhaps my training had, had started me. So 
Yeah, I'm not. I have no idea where we are now in the conversation. Sorry, Phil. But, but uh, <laughs> no, mate. That's yeah. It's kind of the beauty of it. I, I was just thinking that actually, I, I don't think I've ever come onto these with a plan. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe that's why people enjoy listening. I've got no idea if they do enjoy listening at all. So who knows? Um, <clears throat> I, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of bits you talked about there around, I guess, the dangers of absolutes, and maybe why we as human beings or whatever fall into that trap of of searching for a, a truth. Like I is I just think that even the fact that we're searching for something like curiosity, I think is brilliant, but I always kind of think, well, what, what's the point of it? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are we actually searching for at the end of that? Are, are we always thinking we are going to arrive at something and that will be it? Because the, the whole point of a search is to find something, but maybe we're never actually, we're just, we're always searching for something knowing that we're never going to like, you'll find some stuff along the way. And and I guess that comes down to, or back to your original question of like, what is knowledge? What is that type of stuff? And I, and I just find that really fascinating. Because I, I do wonder if that is where we are certainly within a coaching academic kind of type space of, we've just got lots of people clashing heads lots of the time saying yeah. your idea isn't the absolute truth. And my idea isn't and but kind of still presenting things as the absolute truth and maybe if we all just said look we're all kind of we yeah there's some evidence but we can pick and choose what our evidence says and then we've got biases and we've got all these things and whatever camp you're in do you know what i mean it just gets incredibly messy and maybe the whole issue underpinning that is that whatever anybody says we are all we fall into the trap of thinking there is a truth and i i'd just be interested in what you guys think on that yeah, my my take is that uh, is is that we only have a partial truth of anything, and that partial truth is from our own perspective, right? Clearly, we're 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 we all we're all biased individuals. We all have our own beliefs, um, and that transcends academic beliefs, right? Um, so so clearly, whenever we view a phenomena, we're always going to just view it partially. We're never going to be able to have this. That's why I tend to, to like, I grapple at times with words. I really enjoy words and, and the etymology of words. But one word that I, I kind of have this really weird relationship with is holistic because I don't think we're ever, we, we can be. Holistic implies that I'm able to look at every part of something holistically, you know, as, as, as a whole. And, and to me that it, it implies a, an, an enclosed thing, right, that, that has all of these things knowable, um, and, and to me, knowledge isn't something, all right, here's a bit of a quirky one for you. Knowledge isn't something that's knowable, right? It's not something that I can, I can, I can all of a sudden acquire all of the information I need to, to know about the world. To me, knowledge is ongoing. It's not then a matter of, of knowing more than, than other people. It's a matter of perhaps knowing better. And I know better because I spend longer in particular areas, in, in particular places. I dwell longer in those particular places. So I know, I know better. Um, so I'm more sensitive, I guess, if, if we want to go, go down an ecological path. I'm more sensitive to these, these, this really rich information that others perhaps aren't able to pick up. Uh, I, I can pick it up because I spend longer in, in, in that particular um, environment. Now, you put me in another area. Uh, that, I, that I don't dwell in uh, as long and clearly I'm not going to be able to pick up what someone else that dwells a lot longer in that particular area um, uh, can pick up. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a sociologist named David Turnbull who refers to knowledge as being local, 
right? It's, it's all just local knowledge. Um, Westernised scientific knowledge is just local knowledge. Non-Westernised um, or, 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 or um, you know, really inhabitant knowledge is local knowledge. Uh, it doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. It simply just means that, that uh, people that dwell in those environments for longer are able to perceive things that perhaps someone that doesn't dwell in those environments um, uh, for, for prolonged periods of time is, is, able to, uh, is able to pick up. But really, fundamentally for me, as, as, as a scientist, um, I am cautious a lot of absolutes because I don't believe that knowledge is absolute. I, I believe that, that it's, it's very much something that's sensitive to us uh, that, that, that we can pick up based upon how long we, we dwell with them. So, so something that I like to talk to coaches a lot about is I often talk about what is it that in this world, what is it that I know really better than anybody else? Uh, what is it that I know better than, than, than anybody, than, than you guys, than the person on the street, uh, than my parents? Well, I, I know my partner, Chloe, better than anybody, right? And the reason I know her better isn't because I've collected data on her in this objective search for truth. It, it, it isn't because, you know, I, I adopt a, a really nuanced theoretical standpoint that tells me what I should be knowing about her. It's because I spend time with her and I correspond with her. I, I, I listen to what she has to say, how she acts, who she is, what she does. I'm responsive to that just as she is responsive to me. And progressively over time, by spending time with her, I'm able to subsequently learn really unique and uh, unique things that others aren't able to pick up. And that comes from spending time with her. Now, I think from a, I think that's a really important. Um, it sounds simplistic, but I think it's a really important and profound thing for coaches to, to, to consider and for sports scientists to consider. Great example, probably a more um, universal example for, for listeners. Some of the best coaches I've worked with are able to just know when an athlete comes in and they're not ready to train on a particular day. Why is that the case? You know, all, the, all their objective testing is saying that they're good to go. You know, that they should be able to train, they should be able to do this, they should be able to do that. But this, this head coach that spent years with this particular player just knows that they're not quite ready to go on that, that particular day. And, and you delve in a little deeper and you, you start to understand that something's happened at home, that, that perhaps a, some objective measurement hasn't been able to pick up. They haven't slept well for the last couple of nights. Uh, sleep's a bad example because, geez, in, in this day and age, it's, it's, it is probably tracked in high-performance sport, but they've had an argument, right, with their partner. Um, that, that for the last couple of nights that's, that's progressed um, and that's, that's, that's putting them in a situation where they're perhaps not right to train. And that's just come about by their mannerisms and their demeanour, which a coach has been able to be sensitive to by, by actually a, a corresponding with that particular person, not by following what data or a theory is, is, is supposed to say, but by actually addressing the, uh, the, the, the person as, as, as a person. Um, and then they're able to modify their, their, their training accordingly. So um, I'm always cautious of, of where I'm getting at with this is I'm always cautious of absolutes. I'm always cautious of, 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 of a particular um, theory or theories. That said, that said, uh, my, my personal preference is, is one particular way. I, I, I like to look at things as, as an ecological dynamicist. That's, that's my orientation. But it would be wrong for me I think, based upon my who I am as a person, it would be wrong for me to dismiss everything else 
because it doesn't follow what I what 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 I I, I subsequently take up with. Um, but that doesn't mean I have to follow what 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 that says. It means I'm simply responsive to what others what others might have to say and what others might have to share um, with uh, with with me as a as as a scientist. But um, I am cautious of absolutes. Why? As I said, well, I don't view knowledge as something that can be absolute. I view knowledge as something that's that's sensitive. That that we know again, we know better, not not know more than than um, than, than other people, but. I'm not sure if that's answered your question or not, Phil, but it's probably presented some interesting things to, to discuss in a, in a little bit more detail. Go on, Ben. So I also think the whole absolutes thing, <coughs> neither side would exist, neither approach would exist if it wasn't for the other and the strength of each other's research anyway. Some of the, some of the best research I've read in my area has been inherently very cognitivist. So people like Bruce, uh, I'm going to butcher some names here, Bruce Abernethy, people like him, like some of their research is like really, it's incredible. It's not from an ecological paradigm, which is where I really quite explicitly and clearly sit in, but it's just good research. And I'm, I'm still probably in the argument that you have to pick a side. There's probably not a meat in the middle approach. I think picking your paradigm and working towards it is important, but dispelling other approaches, it's just a bit, we're nowhere near understanding even we're not even scratching the surface of human performance from a skill level or a learning perspective like so having these absolute ideas it's just it's what's wrong really our irony being absolutist but it's just it's just it's completely unfounded because there is strength in in research everywhere research is informed by these particular paradigms we approach behavior or whatever variable we're looking at from that particular perspective. And we find evidence that that's going to support that perspective from that approach. So we're always going to be conflicting and there's probably never going to be a general theoretical approach to performance because that's kind of not how science works and it shouldn't work like that. It's going to be in flux for long periods of time. The ecological versus cognitive paradigms, it's not these big kind of clashes are nothing new they've existed since like the 70s and they rear their heads every 10 years under new big debates and clashes and it's, it's just in another phase of flux where there's suddenly big interest in this area again yeah i think as well um you know like it really comes back to to who you are as a as a scientist and and, and practitioner and I, and I guess um there's a really weird paradox I find in these debates, and it's probably more so on the side that that you know I, I, I associate with, which is an ecological side, which is saying you're right, I'm wrong, and, and here's why. He, he's he's things you need to learn and read about, and 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 here's why I'm telling you you are you are wrong, and, and here's why. But to me, at least, um, an ecological approach is about self-discovery, right? And that might that might be about self-rediscovery. But it isn't about following um, a, a, a specific um, syllabus about this is why this approach is wrong and this was, was why this approach is right. I find a really uncomfortable paradox with that. So for me as a scientist, and I, I, I have no issues with others that, that want to take up an approach to dispel either side, that's their own prerogative, sweet. But for me... I feel uncomfortable doing that because it really attacks the core ontology of who I am as a scientist, right? As, as, as someone that follows an ecological approach, it would feel wrong to say, 
Ben, you follow a cognitive, cognitivistic approach and you're wrong and here is why, it, because I, I am prescribing to you why you are wrong and it would feel uncomfortable doing that. Um, I'd much rather um, produce research, um, develop and, and grow research that guides people toward stumbling into things for themselves. Uh, it might be slower, it might be a little bit messier, might be motley, but that's, to me, that's what learning is all, all about. That's what knowledge is all about. Knowledge isn't about precision, at least for me. It's about knowing better, but knowing better by stumbling into things, um, you know, not, not, not necessarily about following a, a curricula that someone else has written that you, you should subsequently go, look, here's, here's everything you need to know about this and here's everything you need to know about this. Go off and, and study them and all of a sudden you're going you're gonna to know all these things. But that's, again, coming from my orientation as someone who's very much found their way to where I am now by responding to things and experiences that I've had along the way of being like, hang on a second, why is this coach not following what I'm telling them to say after I've published all this research on, you know, how to, how to um, uh, build some particular model to beat some particular opponent? Why aren't you following what this model is telling you to do? Uh, only to realise that, that's a very small part of, of, of the complexity of, of, um, of human behaviour. Um, so to me, it feels wrong and un, un, really uncomfortable and unsettling to engage in, in that type of dialogue. Um, but as I said, you know, I should preface that to say if that's others' prerogative, that's perfectly okay. Um, but it would be wrong for them to not appreciate the really weird paradox that they find themselves in by saying that you're right and I'm wrong um, or vice versa. Um, so that's probably why I tend to stay out of those things altogether um, as, as, as someone that um, much rather is just spending their time following their own real interests uh, as, uh, as they go. I think it comes back to your point around knowledge. Some of the best coaches I've worked with or even like played for as a, as a youth had didn't had nothing. No part of them was involved in any kind of academic skill acquisition or learning theory, like world. They were just excellent coaches because they've spent time in those contexts, environments where that local knowledge, and some of the perceived brilliant coaches of the world who I've who I've worked with, who are very very embedded in this space, aren't always the most effective coaches. Like there is a in as there is a knowledge that some have kind of just been so embedded within that it kind of goes beyond some of these kind of more abstract theoretical points. Like it just, I'm not always certain how much it's helping coaches anymore. Coming from yeah. someone who's hideous oh. and <laughs> for a long time. I, I think oh, sorry, mate. Ben, I love that you bring that up. I love that you bring that up because um, a... I give you a brilliant example of, of this. I hope he doesn't listen to it and he does have Twitter, so there's a chance that he might listen to it. But my uh, uh, wonderful partner's uh, dad is a, an organic cane farmer in North Queensland, right? And he left school at 15. Um, so conventionally what you would refer to as being educated, he is not, right? And that, that's, a, that's not a blight on him. That's a blight on how we perceive education, um, now, when I go and spend time on the farm with them, um, I could read everything there is to know 
right, supposedly know about organic farming, specifically cane and, and mango farming. And then I go spend time with Gary and that all goes out the window. And why that all goes out the window is because just as Ben was saying, his knowledge is very localised, right? It's very nuanced to that particular farm um, and, and that particular climate and that particular location. So if Gary says don't go swim in that waterhole at this time of year because there could be crocs in it, I ain't going to swim in that particular waterhole at that time of year despite the fact that there shouldn't be any crocs in that area. He's And it comes back to this notion of dwelling. He's dwelt in that environment for a hell of a lot longer than I have. So he's become sensitive to all these things that perhaps I, I haven't been able to be to become sensitive to, despite the fact that I've read all these texts. And that's because reading about a phenomena and experiencing a phenomena are completely, to me at least, are completely different things. I can tell you about all there is to know about cane farming, but I can't tell you what um, burning a cane paddock when the wind is going, blowing at this particular direction at this particular time of day feels like. Why? Because I don't do that. He, however, does do that. So just... But to, to discredit that local knowledge because he hasn't followed a, a syllabus or a curricula that mainstream education would have put in place to say he's he's not educated is, is, is a, an incredible disservice. I have a, have a PhD. I have many years of, of tertiary education. He left school at 15. So according to the conventions of, 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 of mainstream educational systems, I'm far more educated than he is. But to think that that is actually what's going on in reality is a really dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, and the same, I bring it up from a farming perspective, but the exact same is from coaching. I don't know how many times we would have had when I was at, at Port Power, you know, um, third or fourth year sports scientists come in and all of a sudden think, oh, hang on, I've done all these courses on X, Y, and Z. I should know this. Why are you guys doing it this way? This is how, this is what the textbook said. This is what so-and-so who is a leader in this field says, this is how it should be done. Well, the reason it's not done that way is because of this, this, and this. So to discredit the, the importance of, of localised knowledge, which for me at least comes before all of that stuff, that other stuff, that secondary information, to discredit that, is a really dangerous game, a really, really dangerous game. And, and that really, realistically, is, is, is why I like to avoid these types of uncomfortable confrontations in, in social areas because I've said before on, on a couple of platforms, I just personally, I don't think it does anyone a service. I think it actually does both sides a disservice um, and, it, and it constrains people's search it, rather than supporting and guiding and, and nurturing someone's inquisition and, and, and exploration what some even phd students that i have um, that, that i work really closely with my job's not to to indoctrinate them into my way of thinking my way is to help guide them towards their you know, um, interests what 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 they're wanting to follow and, and support them as best i possibly can so um yeah uh, but before i cut you off sorry phil i uh, I, I went on a tangent and then you're good. I, I was just going to pick up on Ben's point about, like, do we have to pick a side? Because I, I genuinely feel like that's where I am at the moment. And it's kind of aware of it. But I don't know. Like, I, there, there is just, I could spend, I genuinely honestly think, like, the rest of my professional career looking at both sides. Because there's that much information. There's that much stuff I'd have to go away and learn and read and apply and try and all this type of stuff. And I still don't actually think I'd be able to sit there and go, like, I could probably work out what works for me in certain environments, but I don't think I could ever come down on a definitively 
this is this is it. Do you know what I mean? And I kind of feel like I absolutely understand it appeals, certain sides appeal to certain people and, and kind of bits of both sides. I'm kind of going, like in my head, that's that's my reality. Like I've seen that stuff work, but I can't explain it because... I'm not on a level where I'm doing this research or I'm understanding it to an extent where I can go, oh, this caused X, Y, and Z or whatever. But you just kind of go, well, how, yeah, come back to that question, how, like, how useful is some of it? Because I kind of view it as like, if we said maybe, t- like take the, the coaching population, whatever that is, like maybe there's 10% that produce this kind of information, academia, science. Maybe there's 30%, and I'm completely making this up, that engage with that. But like there's 60%, I genuinely, if you went, right, talk to me about skill acquisition, they'd probably go, about what now? Like would have no comprehension of any of this, like completely oblivious because it's just not, they're just out as coaches doing what they need to do with whoever it is they're coaching. And they again, I think I spoke about this on the pod last week, like they, you could go a whole career as a coach and never get into this stuff. And I feel like that that maybe you, you, you're clearly going to learn some other stuff along the way. Like, so how hard should you be looking for this stuff? But I'm also kind of wondering for that 60-ish percent, whatever it might be, once they discover it, like how useful is it? Or does it actually just make coaching way more complicated? Because they're suddenly going, well, I've got all these people telling me that it should be this or it should be that. Like, And again, maybe that that their perspective or this perspective of, I need to find an answer is, is just completely flawed. So I feel like I just go around in circles with it because it, it's, it's really complicated. Yeah. So I think that it's a discussion we have with the, with the subject coordinator at our place at Brooks with Matt Fiander. The pick a side, I, I think we have pick a side aspect comes from, they are these two approaches are just so radically different in terms of their underpinning assumptions that just there is there is no middle ground i, I don't i think that the, the divide between them is just too significant philosophically epistemologically ontologically that there's just too many differences between the two paradigms i'm not sure how much coaches on the ground need to bother with engaging with their side because their exposure to this stuff is so limited almost limited entirely to their Twitter feed because the depth that NGBs can cover on the constraints that NGBs have in the courses is, is limited. So unless they're then pursuing private coach education, which obviously comes with a price point, that they're not going to be regularly exposed to this stuff anyway. So one of the modules that we're running at our place, kind of there is Matt Fiander, who's more typically cognitivist than I'm more typically ecological. And we just discuss coaching and then we have like, we have these debates and frame it from our perspective, not saying one is right or one is wrong. It just has different framing. The reality is me and Matt both coach very similar. We have the same kinds of practices, the same intentions. We have the same coaching behaviours. We just explain it using different language, falling under different assumptions because we have different perspectives of, of how the world, what the reality of our universe and world and life is. So. In terms of how much impact it has on coaching, I'm not sure how massive an impact it has. In terms of picking a side, I think that's more based on, it's like, it's like politics, the middle ground. 
lip well or cause upset lib dems don't really exist you're either generally you're either labor or conservative or, or radical events off that and the clashes are really are ideological they're not based on evidence really like we have deep-rooted ideologies and identities built into these particular paradigms and i think that's no different to the skill acquisition space we are just so deeply integrated into one paradigm or the other we're not going to break out of it just from having some better research than the other so this just makes the arguments even more pointless and how can we actually help coaches well it's probably around useful coaching principles or, or understanding the world in different ways and presenting this information in, in more effective and more in more useful more positive ways because currently i think it, it's just it just pushes people away in fact i know it does because the coaches I, I deal with on a regular basis who are not involved in academia they're just coaches they see this stuff and, and they just they just think it's an absolute nonsense my other half's a PE teacher she thinks it's genuinely laughable that people are arguing about this stuff when the reality is she has 35 kids to deal with in an hour PE session in the rain like <laughs> that's her reality that so the actual reality where this is going to help people we're not meeting those demands I'm not even sure I've actually answered the question there. Just at a random. No, 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 no. No, that's. I think you've made some really good points. I. This might be a terrible analogy, but I feel like it's almost two religions trying to convert each other across. And and there will be some people that will probably get very angry that I've just called their perspective a religion because they always called the other side a religion. So, but I, but I genuinely feel like that that's the nature of it, right? It's just yeah, you never. There's some similarities in terms of belief in a higher power. That's probably like. The, yeah, so you could say that, but outside of that, very, very different. So, I, yeah, I, I just wonder how do we distill that down? As you said, and I think that's the that's the best point. Like, how how does that trickle down to all of those people to actually impact them on? You know, coming back to Carl, your your like real initial point. Like, how do we get people to plan more effectively or to not plan more effectively? Like, how do we get people to be comfortable with as a new or inexperienced coach? being able to kind of go into a session with no formal plan and, and still have the skill and the understanding and, and the nuance and everything else to go through a session and, and manage that effectively and feel like you're coaching, not just babysitting or you're not just kind of hands off. Like I can understand some of the criticisms of some of the terminology around or let the game be the teacher because people just think, well, the coach stands there and does nothing. And you're kind of going, well, like that's not what it means. So let's let's be really clear. Like it's a it's a bit of a straw man of a straw man of a straw man of a straw man. Like it, this just keeps going. But actually, what's helpful, and and I think that that would be the biggest thing for me. Yeah, I, I think is I agree with absolutely what exactly what both of you have said. I think the real elephant in the room here as well is is uh, we we have to appreciate the demon that is Twitter. You know, and, and Twitter affords a platform where anybody, anybody from Professor so-and-so to, you know, um, person X who does, you know, Y can say something on a platform that, that can reach anybody, right? And, and so I, I think we need to be very careful to um, not conflate what is written on Twitter as meaning, as again, as this search for truth. It's clearly guised behind some something that someone's trying to push, something someone's trying to sell, some ideology someone's trying to convince others of of, of being right and wrong. Again, that's not to to smack them. It's simply, that's their prerogative. But it's to to really appreciate that 
what something well what things are written on social media there's often a, a, a you know there's often something beneath it. It, it what what you're seeing is is the branches there are some some significant roots you know really deep in the ground somewhere so it's to be considerate about what you're what what uh, what you're reading but i can, i think what the real frustration for me is is a young coach going into any sport whatever whatever it is and 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 you know at at whatever level like I actually, I would be quite annoyed to think that they would be spending the precious time they have trying to differentiate an information processing construct from an ecological dynamics or ecological psychology construct. I would say that they're better spent just getting to know the people that they're subsequently working with, right? And I say people, not athletes, because they're people, you know, learning to correspond with people, learning to talk to people, learning to understand the demeanours of, of, of people. Um, because, again, regardless of which side you subsequently find yourself on, both sides run the risk of viewing athletes as objects of analysis, you know? Like, that's not what they are. They're people, you know, like they're, they're, they're people that have stories to tell and stories to share. And I think, again, call me an absolutist, but the job of a coach should be to join with the stories of those people to help them become, you know, help them on their journey to become. Now, here's a really interesting point. An athlete coming into a program, into an elite sport program, might have the ambitions of wanting to be, you know, the best player in that sport, you know, or the best player at that particular club. And over the course of five or six or seven seasons, might start to find their way towards other things that interest them. So your job as a coach, I still think, is to help them explore those things. So in, in Australian football, you know, there are lots of opportunities for players exiting the game, not just to go into coaching, but to go into welfare and, and player welfare or, or to go into to media or, or to go into game development or, or to go into all these other rich areas. So as a, as a person... I think fundamentally your job as a coach is to help another person become a better version of whoever they are. Now, if you want to spend your time dissecting um, behaviour through an information processing construct or an ecological, psycho ecological psychological point of view, go and undertake a scientific degree like Ben and I and others are doing. That, 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 that's my opinion. That's, that's my belief. But fundamentally at the end of the day, I think a coach should be spending their time really understanding the people that they are that they are coaching, not not worrying about what one side of the debate is saying and what the other side of the debate is saying. And oh, I can't do this because you know I want to be an ecological coach, so I can't do this. Or I'm I'm an information processing coach, so I can't do this. Exactly like Ben said, you can have people that are pretty well. Um, uh, grounded in different camps, but still do very similar things out on the field. Why? Well, we're dealing with people, right? How we explain what it is that we're observing might be different, but there's still people doing things at the, at the same time. Uh, there's a wonderful sentiment, again, uh, I'm going to bring him up again, from Tim Ingold, who argues that uh, the world is, is, is complete with things, not objects, but things. And the importance of that comes from Heidegger, who argues this difference between objects as these fixed, complete um, uh, entities ready to go and things that are always on their way to becoming something else. So I think as a coach, you have to appreciate that you are always on your way to becoming something else and you're working with people that are always on their way to becoming something else. Um, so if you spend your time 
in that space, I think you'll go a hell of a long way than you would if you spent your time trying to work out what an ecological psychologist is yelling at across the divide to an information processing uh, scientist who's subsequently yelling back at them. But Twitter has a lot to, to, to fall into for that because the, these debates are public um, and they're very easy for people to, to try to understand. You read a Twitter feed, you read a th thread, and all of a sudden you're supposed to know all of there is to know about these things. But as Ben's touched on before, I've spent, you know, better part of 10 years of my life trying to uh, find my way to where I am now, and I'm still none the wiser. Um, and this is my job. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I would much rather a coach spend their time getting to know someone rather than trying to fit that person into an ideology. That's such a massive point. Probably a journey I've been on over the last couple of years. I was quite a clinical, almost treat players like variables kind of coach. Like I know all this stuff around ecological dynamics. I can, I can allow their natural self-organising tendencies to emerge. But actually, it's just that's just like twenty-five less than that. It's just such a small part of the job. And and moving into into women's football was probably my biggest wake-up call in terms of these are people. Like <laughs> maybe I should actually speak to them and like get to know them and engage with them on a personal level. And surprise, surprise, they actually perform better. <laughs> they, they work with you rather than you just working for them to make them do stuff it becomes such a more collaborative process and it made me a thousand times a better coach and there was nothing in skill acquisition theory which helped me there that was this coaching and this the the, the actual real part of, of of coaching which is made me by far a better coach and person arguably well that's it that that's it you know like it's it, it's <sighs> To, to me, um, you know, some of the best coaches I've worked with through, throughout my, my journey, I probably couldn't tell you what side of the fence they, they, they sat on. They couldn't tell you what side of the fence they sat on. But um, how they corresponded with people is what is really, really important, um, I think. And your point, Ben, on you know, on, on talking to people and getting to know them beyond, you know, again, how you two would both be really familiar with this. How many times, right, would, would you have stepped foot in a sporting organisation and, you know, the words like connection and bonds and relationships, that's like, you know, that's the most important thing. And you walk past someone in the corridor and you're like, how are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? Yeah, good. Like that, that's not conversation. That's not getting to know someone. But really getting to know them by saying how is how how's in a way that like you know my barista down the street knows what's going on in, in my life because they remember they talk to you about things and you're like oh I feel special because they remembered that you know I was going to this place you know the other day and and, and they're able to to have a conversation with you and hold a conversation with you um, to me that that's a that's a really really integral part my partner Chloe. Um, uh, uh, manages a, a spinal cord injury clinic here in Victoria. Um, and, and, you know, she, she deals with some really compromised individuals. Um, she really fortunately is, is not in that situation, but she's responsible for designing exercise programs to help these people function, right, and maintain a level of functionality. But the most important information she gets isn't from textbooks about how to, you know, better design some particular exercise prescription from someone that's suffering a C4 partial spinal cord injury. 
It's from talking to them, understanding who they are, understanding their story, corresponding to their story, talking to their family, understanding their family's story, understanding where they've come from and designing features that, that really helps them by talking to them. Great example of this, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, there's uh, um, in, in the place that, that she works, there's obviously uh, restrooms that have been designed for people that, that have spinal cord injuries. But even some of the design features of these restrooms, which are explicitly for these people, haven't been designed by talking to people that have these issues. So people that are left-handed go into a cubicle and they're unable to use it properly in the way that it's been formatted for them or, or, or does it supposedly function for them because they haven't been spoken to, they haven't been engaged, they haven't been corresponded with, irrespective of the fact whether you view that as an affordance or whether you view that as a cue, right? Whatever, you, whatever theoretical orientation you take, to me, it circles back to just getting to know people and, and, and um, listening and corresponding and genuinely caring about what it is they, um, they, they have to, to, to share with you. The divisive debates probably are more interesting for certain scientists on, on either side of the fence, but, but uh, for, for the coach that just wants to help uh, a 14-year-old kid become better at rugby, I would suggest spend your time getting to know who that 14-year-old kid is, what, what, what they're interested in, what they like doing beyond playing rugby, and that kid will remember you for a lot longer than whether or not you designed a, an information-rich practice task, um, in, in my experience at least. Uh, yeah, I, I just wrote down, can you make someone uh, feel special through conversation? Like that, that I think is just brilliant. And and I genuinely can think of probably three or four people that I would speak to pretty regularly that they just have a skill of doing that. Like they 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 always feel like they're invested, right? They always feel like they're they're engaged in you. It's not just that token gesture of how you doing, as you say, like that that brief interaction. So no, I love it. Um, we could probably keep going on on this area for forever. So I am conscious that uh, we need to jump over to Ben and uh, and you talk about uh, your your piece of content as well, mate. So um, we'll kind of pause that one and uh, we will come across to you. So far away. I forgot about that. <laughs> Got so into it. Um, I just think it, it actually stems quite nicely. Um, so the the content that I I, I was going to present. Admittedly, I have been in a marking hole for the last week, um, and I've just been rubbing, rereading an old book, so it's nothing new particularly. Um, but called a book by Donald Norman in like the late eighties. The copy I've got is called The Psychology of Everyday Things, but apparently there's a new version called The Design of Everyday Things. Um, but I, I like the classic, so we'll roll with that. And essentially, the, the premise of the book is it's all around kind of human design. So it. it in a really nice quite kind of witty way it goes just through loads of design features of, of loads of different bits of technology like everyday technology like office phones and just kind of kind of deconstructs their design in, in, in the way that they've been designed without the human in mind or designed with a particular kind of human in mind which doesn't really reflect the the, the everyday people that will interact with this technology so a little bit like the the cubicle door like for left-handed people so there's a lot of there's a lot of examples particularly around just novel things like light switches like when you've got three or four light switches on the same panel and there's no actual indicator for which one turns off which particularly in every classroom at a university in the UK you end up just hammering every light switch until one of the ones you kind of want to be on is on um 
and it's the same everything display monitors on kind of the host stands they've always jazzy buttons and features but i just want to turn it on and it takes me ages to find the on button so i've i've loved this book for for quite a while and it's one i always go back to to try kind of ground myself and try and make the links to to coaching and in terms of also my work around in ecological psychology as well and i guess from a a design perspective i like thinking about it from a coaching perspective like is the tasks we're designing are they actually emphasizing the features we want our, our learners to engage with so you know it should happen quite regularly particularly in kind of having these conversations with students in their coaching practicals and they're going oh, well they're not doing what i want them to do and it's trying to unpick that and think well why what's let's think about the task you know you want them to find space or you want to utilize space which don't even get me started on space anyway but but there's no direction to the play so how can they utilize areas of the pitch which are more effective when there is no part of the pitch which is more effective than others so i always like i like having direction particularly in in football we tend to get non-directional stuff quite often just general keep ball boxes kind of stuff but you haven't got direction then the space doesn't have purpose so there's no feature of the pitch or the playing area which is more valuable than others and if we're not designing in areas of the pitch which are more valuable they're not going to take or make use of it or take advantage of those features of the design environment so just trying to think about how we design uh practice designs be innovative for our approach to really emphasize features of it that we want them to take up and engage with and we can call that affordances if we want to dip into that terminology and are we constraining that environment to to afford those particular behaviors we want to see so if i want my players to play lots of long vertical well flat vertical passes between players and between lines between units now how can i think about what my practice area looks like so i'm going to afford lots of moments for my players to use those kinds of passes so if i go like a really wide pitch well actually the solution is probably to pass wide and utilize wide areas and build that way whereas if i have a really narrow pitch i'm going to afford or offer lots more opportunities for my players to play these vertical passes between units because it's the only way or one of the fewer ways to progress the ball forward on the pitch so it, it it's 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 not a it's not a heavy academic book frankly um because i have to read enough of them but it, it just proposes problems in design in a really innovative way and just makes you think around who are the people at the other end of this product or design or environment or or what piece of technology whatever who who's the person at the end and how are they going to actually engage with the parts of the task or parts of the object we want them to engage with so i guess the question i have which i've been sat on since the start is and i throw it at carl i think how how do we make those connections between knowledge and knowledge being something which is more around being embedded and, and dwelling and not being a a thing we can possess how, how do we find how does that fit in with those more everyday or more every interaction perceptual activities where we are engaging with particular tasks or particular smaller events yeah that's that's um it's a, a good question for 9.30 at night after a couple of glasses of red. Uh, <laughs> but no, in, 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 in all honesty, it's, it's, it's a really strong, really, really nice question. I, I, um, I like Don Norman's stuff as well, like what you were touching on. I think he, he mentions 
he's not um, anti-technology. He's pro-human, right? And I, to me, that, that that's that's stuck with me for a while. You know, like I, I think sometimes works like Norman can be read as being like, oh, well, you're just romanticizing over a time when there wasn't technology. If those that can't see it, in, in inverted commas. But in, in, in what he's actually doing is, is, is exactly what you mentioned, Ben, he's considering the, the end user in, in, the, in the device, in, in the technology, which to me is really, really important. And that comes into this notion between like surface represented technology and um, uh, internally represented technology, like surface technology. When I look at a hammer, I can only use it in, in certain ways as what it affords me, right, as a hammer. Whereas when I look at my thermostat on my wall, I press a button and all of a sudden it gets hot or cold. And that's this internal representation. I can't see how that happens, but it commodifies some output for me. And what, what I guess what, what for me at least, what Norman has been arguing against is that form of technology. And why that's really important to, to argue against um, is because we then are willing to um, give ourselves away to devices, to black boxes, to commodified in, uh, to, to commodifying ourselves and our interactions with others. Um, and this is where I like to, to link in with, with Don, Don Norman's work, Albert Borgman, who is another wonderful philosopher who argued on this notion of, of this device paradigm where, um, you know, we have these two views of, of technological devices, one being a focal point uh, and one being a commodity. Generally represented technology like a thermostat is very much one of a commodity where I want to get hot or I want to get cold, so I'm going to turn a switch on. I have no idea how what goes on in the background. I just press a button and, and, and hope that it subsequently makes me hotter or, or, or colder. And if it doesn't work geez, I better go and get an expert who knows what they're talking about with this thermostat and can throw some fancy words and all of a sudden tell me that, you know, the reason my aircon's air not getting colder is because I haven't had it serviced in X number of years. And then on the other spectrum, devices used more of a as a, as a focal point. And I think that's where, where, where you were touching on with your comment here, Ben, is devices used as a focal point open up opportunities for ongoing correspondence with, with people that we perhaps hadn't necessarily known we're there in the first place. And, and the differentiation that Albert Borgman uses between the thermostat is the, the, the wood fire, right, a, a, a stove or, or an oven. A wood fire requires a person to go out and chop down a tree to then cut up that tree into pieces that are going to fit within a particular wood fire or particular stove. It then requires the person to, to, to perhaps light that fire and sustain its heat right? So it requires all of these things. So the, the heat that the people are subsequently getting from that, that particular device, the stove, um, they're, they're able to understand where that subsequently come from through really careful selectiveness within, within their particular environments. But the key with this is that the device all of a sudden becomes a focal point and it becomes a point where people can subsequently engage. But through that engagement, it opens up all these really rich, interesting lines of, 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 of correspondence that you can follow on with. So again, think about a campfire. You sit around the campfire and you talk, you share stories, right? Whereas when you're at home and you've got your partner there and you all of a sudden turn the thermostat on, I don't know where the heat's coming from other than perhaps some vents. So I'm going to sit and play on my phone or not engage in that, with that particular person because there's nothing for me to focalise my, my behaviour uh, uh, around. Now, that has really strong implications, I think, in sport. 
you know, like in, in, in the use of technological devices in sport and design of those te- technological devices in sport. I'm thinking of things like GPS units, for argument's sake. They give us really important information about athlete movements, but the, 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 the conventional sports scientist, let alone coach, isn't going to be able to tell you how that data has come about. They're just going to be able to tell you that it's been spat out onto my computer screen from a micro device that's been stuck between the shoulder blades of an athlete who's running around out on a field. They might be able to tell you that it's sampling at 10 or 15 hertz, but but how it's actually given you that information, they're probably not going to be able to, to tell you about. And the risk that we then run into is that we then focus all of our attention on the number, right? A coach looks at a GPS report, and simply goes, oh, athletes X and Y haven't been working hard enough when they're out on the field. Why? Oh, well, because look at their high speed distance. It's considerably lower to athletes, you know, um, B and C. Oh, well, perhaps it's been because they were actually, um, again, to use some some um, theoretical language, perhaps they were more perceptually attuned to, to opportunities or invitations that meant they didn't have to run when they were out on the field, but they still engaged in successful gameplay. Um, so maybe it's not, not, the, not the fact that they were being uh, or weren't working hard enough or, or uh, are not fit enough when they're out on the field. Maybe it's a design of the activity that's an issue. So let's go back and revisit the design of, of the activity. Um, but I think, again, I think we're in an age where we're speeding up with our use of technology. We're running before we actually appreciate what it is that we're doing or what we're trying to do with, with technology and how that um, is, is simply just an, an artefact of, 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 a, of an activity that we've designed. It's not telling us, it's telling us, I guess, what we set it up to tell us, right, which is, which is the, the interesting or, or, or the important part, which comes back into knowledge, Right. And, and I think there's a really important part here where a really skilled coach is able to um, look at an athlete's GPS report uh, as secondary to the fact that they were there immersed in the training session and were able to understand that athlete X didn't actually run that much, but they were really central to how that game was played. Why? Because they were able to pick up things that other athletes weren't able to pick up. So they didn't have to run 15 Ks to get three touches of the ball. They were able to, to, to you know, run one K at, you know, X high speed, but were really immersed in the game because they were able to actually read the game and it's unfolding at a much higher level than perhaps someone else or perhaps one of their, their lesser tuned teammates were, were, which comes back to a design feature of, of the activity, not necessarily the fact that they, they're not necessarily working hard enough. So um, there's a careful balance between giving too much of uh, too much control to devices, which perhaps we don't really understand how we've gotten to some particular information that we're anchoring our judgments off of versus um, uh, carefully using the, the devices as an important part of information, but not the be all and end all, not what I'm anchoring my judgments um, off of, which is, I think, to me at least, where Albert Borgman was going, who I should add has been heavily criticised in his views, but, but uh, is, is perhaps where I think he's going between don't use technological devices to commodify, use them as points of focality to open up discussions have, have have really interesting conversations with players and other support staff about why we're seeing what we're seeing from a particular device rather than all of a sudden commodifying that it's happened in this particular way because, you know, the athlete's simply not fit enough or not working hard enough or whatever it subsequently may be. So, again, I'm not sure if I answered your question, Ben, or just went off on some weird tangents, but maybe I'll throw it to you, Phil, or to, to you know, see if you can piece together what I've said. <laughs> 
I, I yeah I re- again really interesting and I I was kind of just my thoughts were bringing that round to like do does that mean we approach players in quite a mechanistic way so I was just thinking of, of quite a lot of sports cliches like certainly around psychology like our oh, switch on or right we need to focus now or do you know what I mean come back to the light switch thing it's it's like we can just view that and go yeah no this is something that you are capable of doing and I'm just I'm not sure that's ever been a thing so Actually, is is that just lazy coaching? Is is that just the nature of coaching in in everybody? It's a shortcut, right? Because when we say that, everyone kind of knows what we mean, but maybe there's actually a way more effective way to do that. And as you say, does 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 the involvement? I guess that's been around from a psychological perspective way longer than than lots of technology. But I wonder if this all just kind of adds to that factor we've already kind of talked about: is are we just missing the point of it being a person? And, and th- does this just add layers and layers and layers of detail to what we think coaching is, again, inverted commas, rather than actually just engaging with those individuals? Because, you know, maybe a, a conversation about h- how far do you think you ran today or how are you feeling, like, is going to be more beneficial than endless stats. And that's not doing a disservice to sports scientists. Like, there's, there's clearly a role for that in the environments in which they're in. But as you say, the good ones are going to know and have those conversations to match up the data with the feel I, you can yeah I, I'm not sure I, I don't know if there is an answer to that but it's it's definitely a good question I we've we've gone quite heavy and I've got the, the role kind of I really enjoy being like an analyst coach because I'm fully immersed in all of our data collection and we just use that data as parts of our design features for training so we, we, we try to avoid kind of more isolated stats, but things like field tilt, so percentage, so rather than doing possession, we work out percentage of touches in kind of the dominant area of the pitch. So how many times we're having it in their defensive third compared to how many times they've got it in our defensive third and working out possession based on that. So we just take things like that and use them as design features. So we might get some opposition footage and run that on them and then we can work out well if our opposition play like this but if we structure training like this this week then when we might exacerbate or invite some of those behaviors we will see in our opposition and we'll see that and we'll try and replicate that in our training demands without perhaps being as explicit with saying they play like this and they do this let's try and embed some of that knowledge and immerse it within our training design so that's, I guess, where I've seen technology being used. The GPS stuff's interesting because it's become really common at lower levels in, in the UK, particularly in football, where there's kind of commercial GPS units like Catapult, uh, Player Tech, sorry. Um, like they've become so commercially available. Lots of clubs have them and use them, but no one's really sure why or how they're being used that they're just kind of the novelty of the fact they exist is quite interesting and there, there is this weird shift like an over technologicalization is that a word we're gonna roll with it uh, and um and yeah maybe missing some of that kind of human the human at the end of, of, of these interactions i don't really know where we go from there i know kind of that you must done more work in this area yeah it's it's i think it's a really important important part because I think in this in this day and age, we run the risk of thinking coaching is about being a technologist, you know, or, or being a data scientist. Again, I'm going to blame Twitter for this. That that any any person seems to to think that you know because you can you, you might be able to 
model some code that all of a sudden you're a data scientist, right? Um, or, or because you understand understand sampling frequencies, all of a sudden you're a technologist specifically focusing on GPS. But um, I think there's some really important philosophical questions that need to be had with the use of technology before we, we all of a sudden throw it all in. There's not even a framework, right, to, 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 to follow whether or not a device or a bit of tech should be used. It's just kind of thrown in and thrust in. But again, the, the discussions that I used to have with our general manager um, at, at, at the club I used to work at was if, if you're coming to me and saying, Carl, I've got $120,000 to spend for the next season, what do you want to use it on? I'm not going to be telling you I want to buy a bit of tech. I'm going to be telling you I'd, I'd rather invest that on a really good development coach or a couple of coaches that are able to, to support our head coach in, in, in ways that perhaps they need, need support in. Um, a great, great case example of this. I was working with, with some coaches, some, some rugby union, a rugby union coach explicitly here in Victoria, and uh, um, they, they, they asked me out to a few training sessions and, and um, just engaged in some observation. And I remember one particular session stood out a lot because they had a few coaches um, and as a training session was going on, one coach was facilitating the particular activity and the other coaches were congregating on the side, right? And as they were congregating on the side, they were kind of doing what, um, coaches on the side tend to do and just talk shop for a bit and, you know, not really focus much on what's actually going on in that particular activity. And that to me really stood out. I was like, well, hang on a second. You've got um, six coaches, one of which is, is kind of facilitating the session. What are the other five doing in this particular situation? And the coach uh, that I was working um uh, close with at the time mentioned that well in their environment they have a, a drone that goes up and what and records the session right a bit of tech that records the session and because the sessions are recorded well the coaches feel like they can watch them back later on you know there's no need to necessarily be there so to speak because the the sessions are recorded um and that to me again was was a bit of a bit of a flag of thinking well uh, you know again you're giving all of your um skill or risking de-skilling yourself as a coach of being really attentive to things that are going on in a game, to things that you're hearing, right, that you can't necessarily pick up from a drone because most drones don't have microphones, let alone uh, if they do, being able to pick up sensitive, uh, really nuanced things that are, that are discussions that are going on between players or hearing, uh, sorry, or seeing things that perhaps a, a drone isn't, isn't able to pick up or just feeling what it's like to be in that particular activity as, as, it, as it's unfolding. Um, so we, we started to do things like, um, you know, uh, blinding coaches to the fact that activities weren't recorded, right? There is no drone today. So, so subsequently be present you know, actually attend to, to the activity as it's unfolding, engage in the activity, engage with the players, uh, talk amongst your, yourselves about, about what you're seeing standing on that side of the field versus standing on the other side of the field versus standing on, on, on the other side of the field. But where I'm going with this is, is I worry that um, coaches, young coaches coming into sport, particularly high-performance sport, but Ben, as you mentioned, it's not, not delimited to high-performance sport because of the accessibility of some of this commercialised tech is that we're conflating coaching as being, you know, really skilled at technology or, or coaching as being someone that I have to follow the numbers. I, I, I probably one of the most um, humbling experiences for me over my journey thus far was one of the first times I sat in the coach's box during an AFL game 
with, uh, with, with the head coach who had, uh, we had like seven Macs set up with, with uh, the vision of the game being fed to the Mac. We had real-time data being presented to, to analysts and, and, and to coaches. And the head coach, who was a very experienced head coach, liked one stat. That was it. He just liked to, want to, to, to focus upon one stat. He, he wanted to be in the game. He felt by looking at his computer screen, listening to what the numbers were, were, were saying, was detracting him from actually being present. Now, that was his prerogative, um, but that's how he felt, felt he was, was successfully coaching. So my job um, in, in that situation was to support him in that particular venture. Again, it's not to discredit all of this data and this tech that we have, but I think we need to be careful not to conflate coaching um, and, and, you know, being a technologist um, because as Norman uh, ben, in, in the in, in the books uh, you, you or the book you were touching on, as Don Norman, I'm sure would contend, we need to be pro-human um, in in our stance in how we use technology, not to commodify people or to view people as something that can be capitalized or marketized or commodified, um, but as, as as people that that uh, that have stories to share with us, which tech can be one part of helping us understand that story, but not the part. Or, um, uh, in, um, in in helping us resolve that story. I'd love to know within that as well, actually, just like, what's the tipping point? At, w- at what point is it just too much information? Because is it almost job justification then that you're just you're just building data and data and data and data? And you might say, yeah, okay, there's there's a reason for having that because we can look at trends over over time and everything else. But like, how long is half time? I mean, that's always a classic, isn't it? Like how much information can you actually share with somebody or discuss with a team or a group of individuals at half time that's going to impact performance? And I don't think anyone gets that right. Do you know? I think there's always going to be things where you're going, you know, you've got 15 players and a bench and however many coaches. And as you say, you know, there's probably 20 something plus perceptions, maybe 30 perceptions of, 40 minutes of rugby or football or whatever it's going to be, well, how do you condense all of that into something that's worthwhile? And it, it, I, I find that fascinating, just the role of the coach within that. Sometimes, you know, people will be huge advocates for that's got to be player-led, like it's their game, you've just got to supplement that. Other times, the role of the coach is deemed as being the person with the answer, like why is it that your perspective outside of the game is more important than the players in the game? If you then kind of go in between, it's it's combining those two. But do you have time to actually get into those discussions? Like, I, it's it's a hugely complex element. I mean, yeah, after the game, uh, you know, I guess it becomes far easier to manage the data and the processes and how you feed that back. But in the moment, it just feels like we're trying to just cram and cram and cram and cram and cram. Whereas maybe less is more maybe it's just about facilitating some some better conversations and and trying to find again not that there is an answer but but i guess that innate feel for from your experience like what do you think in this moment is going to have the biggest impact and we're never really going to know that which i think is is like maybe the beauty of it like it's a complete intangible we've got we can't really ever go back and say you know look at the the biggest comebacks in sport like liverpool's half uh uefa champions league win like is always a great example three nil down like what was it that changed in that changing room that made them come back out like can anyone put their finger on one thing no so uh, yeah it kind of makes you go what like 
why do we bother with a lot of this stuff when actually we can't we can't prove it? But I don't know if there's a question in there, but it is just yeah, I think it's a fascinating area. Mm. Did isn't there the big Liverpool comeback? Wasn't there like an error at halftime as well? They forgot something to do with Steve Finnan wasn't named when he was going back out. There was like a whole I'm sure there was an error at half time. So there wasn't like this big motivational rounds of speech, but actually just like polished off with like sort of make an error an, an actual error about who's actually on the pitch. Like I wonder how much of the, how much of an impact can yeah can we have in well, it's not even fifteen minutes, is it? Really it's you know, everyone sat down and got back in at looking at ten minutes and such like that playing is such an emotional experience like how engaged are people when they're back in the room it's yeah you're right there's there's just no answer to it there uh, yeah i'll be no help there either <laughs> oh yeah I, I i think i just think it, it comes back to this romantic view of sport you know we want to be able to attribute winning a championship to some you know some rem, you know remarkable thing you know whether that's a, a rousing speech at half time whether that's some really unique statistic which all of a sudden is spat out during a game. We want to be able to anchor things um, that we observe to definitives. Why? Because I think as humans we like cause effects, you know, like that that's who we are. But we're not cause effect beings, you know. We don't live in a cause effect world. We live in a really complex, really messy, really noisy place. Um, and and I, I think the, the sooner that we appreciate that in coaching, um, particularly in in um, in game coaching, the more we'll actually be relaxed in situations. You know, like I actually think in in pressured games in in Premier League football, in the AFL, in the NBL, the role of the coach during a game is really one about just patting a player on the back and saying, "Look, it's all going to be okay at the end of the day." You know, like it, it's 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 not the end of the world if these things happen and appreciating having this humility, this, this kind of comfortability in being like, I really can't change too much of what's going on. To give you a bit of an example, a couple of years ago in the AFL, um, so within the AFL, those, those listeners that don't know, uh, a coach used to be able to send out a runner, right, at, at any time throughout the course of the game to deliver messages to players or to engage in these structural changes throughout the course of the game. And, and a couple of years ago, just recently, a couple of seasons ago, the AFL said, actually, no, we're stopping that. A runner can only go out after a break in the game, whether that be a, so a goal or, or a prolonged period of, of stoppage in the game. And um, uh, I remember the, the head coach, I was, in the, I was working in the AFL at the time, and the head coach of the team that I was working with went along and the general manager went along to one of these, these all-competition all uh, meetings about this. And, you know, 16 of the 18 clubs voiced their, their, you know, dissatisfaction with this without, you know, blowing our own trumpet. We were one of the two clubs that were like, we don't really care. Why? Why don't we care? Because we can't really do anything in the course of the game as coaches. You know, like I, I can't, I can't um, you know, uh, change the course of the game despite the fact I'd like to think I can. I reckon I could count the number of times something that we have done in the game has led to a quantifiable out, outcome change in the game. And that's out of, you know, nearly 100-plus games. You know, like I could count that on, on, on my hand. Um, and even still in those situations, it could still probably be argued that it was luck, you know, as opposed to being something that we, we manufactured. So to me, it kind of circles back to um, like what you were saying, Phil, like information overload. I would much rather a coach or, you know, a head coach attend to the, the, 
the emotions of the players in the times or in the breaks of the game. Really listen to what they're saying. You know, and, uh, be comfortable to, to be open to what they're saying. Not go out there with going, you know, we're minus 10 or minus 15 in this particular stat. We need to change this and get this stat better. But a lot of the time, that's still just descriptive noise. That's just saying, oh, we're minus 10 or we're minus 15 in this particular indicator. It's not actually discussing a solution to this particular problem, which in my experience, a really uh, skilled coach will have picked up anyway. The stats just telling us what we already know, what we're already seeing, probably what most spectators are already seeing when they're watching the game anyway. Um, but again, I, I think is it's hard. One of the reasons it's hard is because, like what you said, there's a justification in there. You know, like coaches feel pressure to be able to say in a press conference, "Why did you?" Uh, you know, someone in a press conference goes, "Oh, Phil, you know, why did you lose that game by X number of points?" You can't really stay there and go, well, we live in a chaotic, messy world and, you know, that's just the nonlinear dynamics at play. You can't say that, though. Um, so you have to anchor it towards something. Um, so we, we, we claim, we, we strive for objectivity for cause effects, which just are non-existent. Um, now, to me, that comes back to, like, being a really artful coach in being able to say those things in press conferences, I guess, to appease that pressure that you subsequently feel, but also have a really firm appreciation that there is only so much that we can really have an implication on um, and, and being comfortable with that, that notion that I'm not perhaps as, as profound as I think I am as, as, as a coach or as a sports scientist. Um, and, and that's okay, you know, because that's, that's part of the job of, of if not part, a large, a large part of the job of being a coach is, as I said, dusting players off and helping them go back out there, but also listening to what it is that they're saying to us in, in those situations, as opposed to what the statistic is telling us we should be doing or we should be focusing on. I, I always think that's the paradox of coaching, right, isn't it? Because stuff would happen if you weren't there. Coaches didn't exist. There would still be sport and there'd still probably be professional sport and they'd just crack on and and would it would it look drastically different maybe in some respects yeah could could that actually be a better thing like quite possibly but in the in the same time like with is it's yeah it's kind of all or nothing like with we're incredible coaches are incredibly important maybe it's just me thinking i'm incredibly important i don't know but you know it's all about the coach at times in terms of how how you embed in everything and how you kind of pull all those strings is like the puppet master almost do you know what i mean every like spider in the middle of a web like you're in touch with every you want to be in touch with every feeling and thing that happens in that environment but you're also at times completely redundant like they're they're just you don't need to be there in theory like you can't do anything so it's yeah and i think we probably maybe over the course of my career like i've swung from one extreme to the other you sit there and just go like this is all about me. Like I'm, I'm the one running this show. And then at the other times I'm sat there, like, I don't know why I bother. Like there's, there's just no point in this. I, it's everybody else doing everything. And clearly we're going to land somewhere in the middle most of the time. But it, but I do find that quite an interesting, yeah. Swing between the two when, when my brain's kind of going, why is no one listening? Like, why are they just doing their own thing? And then you kind of go, well, maybe it's, me that needs to change not them like it, it's it's a pretty good time to reflect and go why why is it i'm thinking like i'm thinking and my brain's telling me some stuff but um yeah it's not easy <laughs> oh like i i think that's there's you you touch on a really important part there it's not 
I guess what what we're suggesting in this way, I, I, which I which is a notion like I really don't like. Um, we're not coaching for redundancy, right? Coaches aren't redundant in my my perspective, at least. You know, like this this notion. Uh, I actually I, I disagree with that. You know, coaches should coach themselves out of the game, so to speak. I, I, I don't believe. I, I honestly don't believe. But what what I guess we're calling for in this situation is a, is a role change, right? Which which almost to link back to this notion of planning. Your role of the coach isn't to plan everything out, you know, 10 steps in advance so something happens in the game. That's right. If that happens, then this, we do this. Or if this happens, then we do this. It's not to, not to do that. It's simply to facilitate an environment where people can flourish. And, again, I say people instead of athletes, you know, like an environment where people from your youngest athlete to your most senior athlete to your next coach, these are just people that are, that are striving to be better versions of whoever they are. So we need to set up an environment which allows them to come to work to be comfortable to, to, to be who they are. Again, to give you an example of this, we used to play practice activities um, uh, at, uh, at, at Port Power where we would award points at the end of these activities to the teams, in, in this was in pre-season, who celebrated in the most creative ways. Why? Why are we doing that? Well, it wasn't about the celebration. It was about encouraging people to be themselves. It wasn't about trying to, to get them to conform to, to, to something that we had planned that they needed to be or, or some textbook that said this is how they needed to act. It was about encouraging the 18-year-old kid that was coming into the program that was already feeling immensely vulnerable and uncomfortable about it being okay to rock up and wearing uh, your, you know, your favourite band's T-shirt or being okay being able to, you know, wear a different coloured pair of boots than, you know, the other players were wearing on, on, on the field at that time. Why? Because we worked out pretty fast that if we wanted to be a successful organisation, we needed people to be really comfortable being the people that they want to become. Um, and, and that's not about conforming. That's that's actually anti-conformist. You know, it, it, we're really setting setting a, a path of of trying to help people become better versions of themselves. A coach in that environment is immensely important. So this notion of re- making themselves redundant is is wrong and doing them a disservice. Call me absolutist for that, but that's that's my my belief. Their role just goes from being like, this is how we play and this is how we do things at this organisation towards going much more towards an approach of how do you want to do things? How how can I help you be a better person of, you know, Phil or Ben or Carl? How can I help you be a better version of yourself towards what you want to achieve? Um, Let's work together uh, as opposed to here's how, you know, we do things at, you know, this organisation or this organisation, which... Unfortunately, at least publicly, seems to be a much more, um, yeah, admirable way of being, you know, to want to be indoctrinated to be a person from this ideology or this camp or this sporting organisation, which you could link back into these theoretical debates. Um, It comes back much more, to me at least, about just being who you want to be and, and me as another person, helping you if I can, if I can't, helping you find someone who can. Uh, be a be a better version of, of whoever you want to be. Maybe a bit esoteric for for, for, for the conversation, but still, uh, I think I think it's to me it's an important part of being a coach. It also leads that inherent assumption there's an end point of learning and development. There's, there's there will be a moment where the coach is no longer needed because they've they've done learning. And uh, I think that that in itself is just a complete fallacy because 
know, it's just it's not this linear progression, right? It's it's about them emerging within those spaces as as, as beings. I, I best way I've I've found, and I don't know whose quote it is, and I I probably should find out because I use it a lot. Is you know you you're on a journey's overused term, but you're on a journey of becoming, but you never become. Which I always think is quite nice. Like it, it, there, death is the end point. Like let's be honest, you, that that's it. There is no other end point in our life where we arrive at something. Like it is constantly, it is just effectively a series of present moments. So you're always becoming. You're becoming whatever, but you never actually arrive. Like it, it's a very abrupt stop at the end of that. Which, yeah, there's there's a there's a lovely word um, for that. Again, someone listening, probably a hell of a lot smarter than me, is going to pick me up for it being attributed to the wrong person. But I think it was William James who used the word concrescent, um, con meaning uh, together, crescent meaning becoming. So we're together becoming or to flip it around to more conventional understanding, we're becoming together. Um, and, and to me, when, when I stumbled across that word a while, a while back, I thought that's a, that's a beautiful description at least um to, to what i think coaching should be about you know it, it's it, it's it's not a matter of impartment transmission instillment from uh, an authoritative hierarchical figure a coach into someone that's deemed to be you know naive or less knowledgeable but it's it's much it's it's one of companionship um of, of guidance and in my experience you know just establishing really good friendships with players um, has led to me changing as a as a scientist. You know, like the, the reason I'm I, I um, find myself um, in 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 an ecological space is because probably the relationships I've established with people over time. You know, like it, it's it's not because I've, I've followed anything, but it's this notion of of like Ben said, it's it's this notion of ongoingness and again i'm going to bring him up again but uh, there's a um tim ingold finishes his book lines uh, 2007 i think it was a brief history uh he finishes it off by saying wherever you are there is always somewhere further you can go um and and i think that captures to me at least what learning is you know um whether we're a scientist whether we're a coach whether we're an athlete we're all people at the end of the day and wherever we find ourselves, there is no dead ends. There's just continued places that we can continue to go off and explore whether, it, however we are responsive to them. So, um, yeah, it's not a notion of dead ends. It's not a notion of here you go, Phil, you're all of a sudden, you know, redundant as a coach. It's always about finding other avenues, finding other ways of, of, of helping players become versions of themselves that they would like to become. I love that. The coming together. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really just, yeah, perfect place to probably kind of round up the discussion and, and finish things off. So um, as I mentioned, we kind of just, yeah, just a bit of a nudge, like what, what would you guys suggest? Just give a shout out to what's on your, your nightstand at the moment. What are you reading? What are you engaging with? What would you maybe just give people a, a quick suggestion to go and uh, check out? Ben, we'll come to you first. At the moment, um, Inverting the pyramid is what I'm reading at the moment. It's, I think it's a couple of years old now, which is kind of like the history of tactics and football because I'm a massive tactics nerd. And also, this bad boy came in the post and Carl features in it at the end. <laughs> I think you're right at the end. Yeah. You look at an ocean, I see the rips, hear the waves, and feel the currents. 
dwelling right in. at the, right at the end. That's probably where I belong in that in that uh, in that book, Ben. So finish yeah. um, <laughs> if that's the way you, you want to look at it. But Phil, um, uh, mate, any uh, from from me. I'm going to go out on a, on a real limb here and say anything from Tim Engold. Uh, it's my, my bookshelf is fairly preoccupied with, with, with a lot of his tech texts. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but, but that said, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting um, work that's getting done from some really interesting people beyond sport. So I, rather than naming names, I probably just encourage readers to take inspiration from lots of different areas. You know, I often, uh, romanticize over starting a paper one day of, of with with the the sentence you know what can a sports scientist learn from an anthropologist well it turns out a hell of a lot so uh, I think I think there's a, an important part there that you know don't delimit yourself to reading if you're a, if you're a football coach to just reading what other football coaches have, have written um, explore well beyond that because what you might find um, you know, reading about Inuit wayfinding might actually be really enriching. For, for something you're dealing with in in, in your particular um, domain, so trying to stay as open and, and responsive to, to to what you can. But um, yeah, as I said, if you're looking for a place to start, um, anything from Tim Ingold is probably a good a good place to to pick up that thread. Love it, guys! Really appreciate that. This is um yeah, this has been pretty deep, and I just think a really, really fascinating chat on on loads of levels. So, uh, thank you both hugely for this. Um, I'm going to round up the roundup. So, to those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, thanks again to the guys for coming on and just contributing to yeah a, a brilliant discussion. Links to all the content discussed, as always, are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Thanks.